Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange, stories by leaders for leaders to help you to raise the bar on your own performance and to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's episode. Greetings, everyone. This is Hugh Ballou, the Nonprofit Exchange. We have unique guests every week who have a passion for providing something of value today with a, um, a person that's the president of a, of a nonprofit in Los Angeles, California. So without going too deep into it, um, I have Daniel Kramer sitting in his office in California, and I'm in Virginia. What a great world this is. So Daniel, tell people a little bit about yourself and a little bit about the nonprofit that you're the president for and yourself, the nonprofit, and What's your passion for this? Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Hugh. It's great to be on. I hope everyone had a great uh, holiday, 4th of July. It's great to be back in the office. Um, but yeah, I'm Daniel Kramer. I am a trial lawyer out here in Los Angeles, California. Um, I, so I, I'm a trial lawyer. That means I represent people, uh, plaintiffs who are oftentimes in a catastrophic injury incident or they lose a loved one, lost a loved one in a wrongful death case. I also represent people who are discriminated against either for their sex, race, religion, sexual orientation, um, and are fired by their employees for an illegal, or employers for an illegal reason. So we represent, I represent plaintiffs in the courtroom. So we take cases to trial. We go, often go up against the biggest and most well-funded corporations, Fortune 500 companies, um, insurance companies that have wronged people. Um, and we go after them in court. So I'm in the courtroom, live and breathe in the courtroom in front of juries all the time. Um, so that's that's on my business side. And I have a firm, Kramer Trial Lawyers here in Los Angeles. Um, but I'm also president of Los Angeles Trial Lawyers Charities. And that is a an organization, a nonprofit organization here in the Los Angeles area that is made up of plaintiff trial lawyers like myself. So we fight for the little guy in the courtroom and what we do outside of the courtroom is we give back and we give back to people that need it most in the Los Angeles area. That's children with disabilities. Um, that's, you know, battered women. That's the homeless. Uh, basically anyone that needs help in LA, uh, we give it to them. We oftentimes give money to our partner charities and we also have our own specific events that we put on to give back and really help out the community here, especially after COVID hit really bad here in LA, um, a lot of people needed help and the trial lawyers in our area stepped up and gave back. That's really cool. That's really cool. I, I guess it's like uh, um, some other areas. There's a whole lot of stuff we don't know that we don't know. Oh, so yeah. It's like, it's like leadership. So this um, LATC, Los Angeles Trial Lawyers Charities, it's right. a 501c3 in California. That's correct. Yes. And you stood up <laughs> at some point and said you'd be president of this. Why did you do that? Well, I kind of, uh, I got asked, so I, I got asked to be on the board uh, about six years ago and our organization is set up like a ladder. So you are elected as the secretary and then you have five, five spots. You become the, the secretary, then you move into the treasurer the next year, vice president, president elect and president. And uh, at my first meeting when I was on the board, uh, someone asked, hey, we need help someone doing the budgets. You know, we didn't we, we didn't have enough money to hire a staff, didn't have a bookkeeper. 
and all these lawyers, most lawyers, especially trial lawyers, do not know how to do books, do not know about QuickBooks or how to, you know, balance the budgets and all that. You don't really learn that in law school at all. And so, but I had actually, when I started my first law firm um, back in 2012, I actually took that on with uh, my, my partners didn't want to do it. So I was like, hey, I'll, I'll take a crack at this. I kind of like numbers. And so I, I dove into it. I love it. And I learned a lot about how to do budgets, QuickBooks and managing the finances. And so I volunteered and then, you know, kind of took off with that and just really revamped how we did our whole organizational finances for the charity. And then they're like, look, we really could use someone like you in leadership. So they nominated me to run and I ran for secretary. And then ultimately that was five years ago. And now it's my turn to serve as president. And we're really doing a lot of exciting things. You know, um, when we we use the word nonprofit to identify our, our organization, that's the beginning of a downward spiral. We start right. thinking scarcity terms. And really, what we're running is a is a tax exempt uh, business, which really has more rules than a, a business business does. But it, it if we get a different mindset, so the mindset that you show, somebody gave you the opportunity to step up. Now, many times people say, oh, I don't want to bother him. I don't want to have him do that. Oh, he's already busy. So talk a minute about some of the mindset. You've probably been on other nonprofit boards and they wouldn't have done this. Oh, we don't want to bother you. So talk about, you've said, you know, I want to take a crack at this. And you got, what I heard you say is you got some real support on that. Then in turn, you were able to bring lots of value to the organization. So for leaders who are trying to empower their boards, what kind of advice would you have around dealing with somebody like you that they might have on the board, but they're not aware they have you? Yeah, I, I think what you said is a really good point earlier is just that you had not nonprofit is it, it's, it's a term we all use, but we have to approach this like you would approach a business, you know, you have to have revenue streams, you have to, you know, really take a conscious eye to expenses and the way you look at a business to try to make it as profitable as possible. You need to kind of take at least I believed when I you know got started getting involved in LATLC is that take an approach like a like a business owner and because the more money we raise from our revenue streams and the the less expenses we can cut on admin and all that that's money that we can give directly back to the community and really make a big difference but you have to have that mindset and I think it's a great point that that that, that you bring up so I think it, when you're scouring your board and looking for top people to really take the reins and, and lead you want to see who has the background that can help in this particular area you know obviously for fundraising you want to find some marketing people people who know how to reach out and and, and really have a big network of people to 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 hit up and that can donate money but then you also on the on the back end uh, you know, you want to look at people who have a budget background or a finance background, and they can really take a look at the numbers. They understand the numbers. They can they can figure out ways to save and and then you know look at revenue streams. And that's a big thing that I've been doing in my presidency is looking at alternate avenues for revenue raising. And COVID actually is what forced us to do this. And I think we've used the the lessons from COVID, which so many people have done out there from the business side, and said, okay, look, we can't put all our eggs in one basket for a big gala. Where we raise most of our money, which is which is great, but with COVID, we couldn't do that. Obviously, you know, we can't have a thousand person gala where we raise hundreds of thousands of dollars. So we had to pivot and start to figure out how we do virtual events. And we we, we realized we had to have multiple revenue streams in case one goes down. We're still able to keep the charity afloat and give money to people that need it most. That's a recurring theme that we hope people get. 
Um, and I can't tell you how many people have talked about that, but it's here it, here it is again. And I would say, Daniel, that a majority of our nonprofits that are in trouble have not established those multiple revenue streams. Right. And, and it's never too late to start. So um, we teach in Center Vision that there's eight basic streams if you don't have real estate and you don't have investments, but there's eight that you can activate right away. Um, and so there are ups and downs. Uh, go back to what you said. I mean, you've given us a lot of really good stuff in the first few minutes of this interview. Thank you. Um, go back to um, reaching out to find the right skill set and the right participation for new board members. Now, you came into this organization just as a regular board member. Was there somebody that recruited you or invited you? How did that happen? Yeah, uh, the um, one of the former presidents, Scott Corwin, who's an integral part, part of our organization, um, we become friends through other plaintiffs bar organizations on the on the you know the plaintiff side, and he saw that I was a worker and that I would you know volunteer for things and follow through, and then he recruited me to you know get involved with LATLC, sort of starting out in the committees because we obviously have a variety of committees as most nonprofits do saw that I was actually stepping up to do the work there. And then again, I started talking to him about the budget and was really interested in that. And then he sort of pushed me to go into that direction. So that's that's how I came into where I am now. Um, but in terms of, to answer your question on recruitment, I, I think it's just really, as a leader, you know, I'm always, what, what I did is I actually, before I became president, I spent the last three months of the prior president's term calling and setting up meetings with every single board member and committee member. It took a lot of time, but during COVID, it was pretty easy over Zoom. So I literally sat down with each of them over Zoom and met and said, what are, what are your goals for the organization? What, play, what, what part do you want to play in the organization? What strengths do you think you can add in terms of this? This is where my vision is. This is what we need on the admin side. Um, this is what we need on the fundraising side. This is what we need on the event side. And then kind of had them tell me what they're interested in and where their skill set is, and then use all that information to place people in different committees on different, you know, in different leadership roles. And I think it's made a huge difference, but it just, it was me doing the, you know, the legwork to spend the time getting to know each board member, because I think, you know, a lot of times we're so busy and I, maybe I was lucky, maybe I wouldn't have done, done it if there was, if it was COVID and I was in trial all the time. Um, but COVID gave me that opportunity to meet with these people individually and really interview them and see what they want. And then I got a lot of notes on, on where I want to take the organization based on their information. So LA must have thousands of nonprofits. Yeah. And there's some that have not taken advantage of just what you articulated here. We can't control the circumstances. James Allen wrote a little book many years ago, over a hundred, uh, as, uh, as a man thinketh. And he says, circumstances, I'm going to revise this to be gender neutral. Circumstances don't make a person. They reveal who they are to themselves and others. And so we can blame the circumstances. And what you did was take the circumstances and pivot or reinvent or create some opportunities uh, from that. Because you, there was a sort of a trade-off. You weren't traveling as much. Right. So, And we had the Zoom, which has become the new black hole. But blessings, we have Zoom. And we can, you know, we, we can get over Zoomed, but really a lot of groups that I'm in are international groups. So we're able to do things that we couldn't do before. So that, that you, what you've just highlighted is there's opportunity if you look for it. Now, you're the president of the board, right? 
Correct. The organization has a staff or not? Yeah, so we have an, an amazing executive director, Lisa Zanville, um, who does so much. I mean, she's nonstop hard worker. Uh, we, we hired an executive director about three years ago, three or four years ago, because we were just growing too much. And, you know, we're all busy trial attorneys and we just didn't, and, and, and we, were, we were able to raise the money to afford it and still, you know, hit our numbers that we need to hit percentage wise, according to Charity Navigator, you know, um, so we were able to hit our numbers. So yes, we have one, one staff member, but we're growing so much due to a lot of these different revenue streams we're bringing in that I think we're going to, we're going to bring on another. So talk about the, the relationship of the board president and the executive director. How does that, how have you created that? How do you make that work for you? And how do you define lines of uh, work, areas of work and responsibility? Yeah, um, so she oversees a lot, um, uh, almost everything. Uh, we do have a social media marketing person who who, who gets our stuff out there, uh, but just on the day to day, you know, it's not it's not an employer employee relationship, and at least in my organization, I don't treat it like that. She kind of keeps keeps me to task, and, and you know, these are the areas that we need we need to do, and you know, myself and our executive committee sort of create the vision. And then we have committees made up of lawyers who do a lot of the legwork, but she is the point person for everything. I started, you know, this year we do, I do a weekly Zoom meeting with her and our other uh, part-time staffer where we just meet and go over everything. But I'm in constant communication with her multiple times a day, either over email, text, call. Um, but we do have a set me meeting at least once a week to go over everything. That's great. When I, I um... When I first moved to Lynchburg, Virginia, uh, three and a half years ago, one of the first groups I engaged with, because I'm a conductor, was the Lynchburg Symphony. I just sought them out and said, how can I be helpful? And one of the, um, they had good people on the board, uh, but they weren't delivering people at the concerts. They weren't making money and they were in great dire financial straits. And, and so I said, well, let's look at our systems. Let's look at our leadership and let's look at our, our vision for where we're going. And so we did a turnaround based on the kinds of things that you're talking about. And then we went into hiring a conductor and hiring an executive director. And one of the things that I think is really important, we assumed, and I, I, the year I was president, I got a chance to bring in on some really good new board members, which was, um, you know, I, and I wanted to work toward a nominating committee. We didn't quite get there, but having a nominating committee that looks at people, not just at election time, but all the time. And, you know, who, who's a candidate to get in the space? Um, so there's, there's this um, balance, there's balance in a lot of things, but we, we really think about, and this is a trap we get into. I, I work with groups of doctors. I work with groups, uh, groups of lawyers. I work with groups of, um, you know, people that are, this was a group of musicians. Well, there's a musical organization. So the assumption is everybody has to know about music or everybody has to know about law, which is wrong. You really need some people that are outside of that. So talk about your, your vision for the board makeup and how do you balance those different perspectives? Because I think if everybody is of one persuasion, there's a lot of blind spots if, if you're too heavily weighted in one discipline. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I mean, we haven't... We we are made up of almost exclusively plaintiff trial lawyers, at least on the board, you have to be on the plaintiff side, meaning that we don't let defense attorneys 
uh, on, and, and that means that attorneys that represent insurance companies or big corporations, we don't let them get on the board. We did start letting non-lawyers get on the board, but they've been mostly people, either employees at law firms. So to be honest, we, we haven't really expanded outside of the law to be on our board yet, because like I said, I mean, we are a trial lawyer organization, but I, I absolutely think it would help to have different perspectives. Um, we're, we're, we would be open to it, absolutely. And, and we work with a lot of partner charities. So we do a lot of, I mean, a big part of our giving is, is passed through. So we have partner charities come to our board meetings. We, we work closely with them to find out what their needs are. And we learn from how their organizational structures are. Um, but so far, I mean, we are made up of just almost exclusively plaintiff trial lawyers. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Um, but you're open to the idea that maybe some other people could be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I'm open to anything. 100%. percent <laughs> um, So um, how, how old is this organization? So we started in 2006, um, just a, a handful of five to six plaintiff lawyers got together I think they raised about $20,000 to give away. Um, and then since then, we have grown. We're in our 15th anniversary. And today, we've given away about $5 million. Um, so it has grown by leaps and bounds. Um, and one of the biggest, one of my biggest platforms was to expand. So we're Los Angeles trial lawyers charities. But now we have officially launched Orange County trial lawyers charities. And we want to take it throughout the state. And then, you know, ideally throughout the country, um, because the one thing we've learned during COVID, especially on the plaintiff's trial lawyer side, is that, you know, we have been connected nationally now through webinars on Zoom and so many plaintiff organizations. We're, we're learning from each other throughout the country. So I'm on webinars. I just got asked to come speak in Canada just over because they saw me speaking on a Zoom webinar about trial skills, for example. And that's happening throughout the country. So when people hear about Los Angeles Trial Lawyers Charities, there's really nothing like us anywhere in the country. And we were contacted by a group of lawyers in Philadelphia who want to start a Pennsylvania or Philadelphia organization, Trial Lawyers Charity, um, because trial lawyers really do want to give back. And it's great to, and, I'm, and, and we are totally open to expanding um, our reach nationwide. And like I said, we already start, launched Orange County. I think the Bay Area will be next and then go from there. I've seen that happen in a number of fields over this last year and a half where people are really interested. And it's sort of like we got a chance to reboot. We had a time to think about things and say, hmm, why not? Um, so how about a story? Is there a story? And of course, we won't tell names or anything, but is there a story about the successful work, one or two stories about what your organization has provided for people? Yeah, I mean, I think um, even just over last holiday Christmas season, we typically do a big 2000 person fair. We call it comfort and joy. It used to be turkey and toy, but it's called comfort and joy. We go to you know, some of the, some of the most underprivileged neighborhoods in Los Angeles, South Central area, um, you know, Inglewood, Compton, those areas. And we usually put on a big, uh, like I said, Christmas fair. So we, we usually work with a police organization in a police department, again, in one of the most high crime areas. And, and these kids often don't have any toys at all for the holidays and uh, or turkeys or ham. So we have hundreds of volunteers who come out there. We give away to lots of toys, lots of food for these kids for the holidays, for Christmas. 
Um, obviously during COVID, we couldn't do it. So, but what we, we did try to pivot and instead of putting on a big fair, myself and the past president, Alyssa Shablowski, we worked with the Newton Police Division and it was the two of us and then a bunch of these police officers all in mask. And we created almost like a Santa, but in the police cars. So the police cars would go to, from, to different houses and we had these bags of toys and all this food and the kids, I mean, when they came out and got it, they were just in tears and excited. The parents are in tears because, you know, like I said, these families are already struggling. And then COVID at that time in LA and around Christmas time, we were the highest in the country, I think, in terms of COVID rates. And we were, we were going to areas where a lot of families live together. So they were hit extremely hard. Mm-hmm. And to see these kids just light up when we're bringing them food and toys, tons of toys that our volunteers had donated they wanted to be there so bad that they couldn't so they give away they give away lots of toys for for these kids and they were just so thrilled so excited i mean it was really a beautiful thing to see and um you know it was was great for the officers because during that time that you know they'd been through a lot in you know uh in los angeles um both sides the community relations with the police so it was it was a win-win all around um, but it was just really special to see. It was, uh, you know, I know a lot more volunteers wanted to be there, but I was fortunate to be there to, to give to these, these kids and these families who needed it. One of um, my friends is an attorney that lives, I think, in L.A. Um, you may know of him, Stuart Levine. He calls himself the resolutionary attorney. Okay. He used to do prosecutions, but then he never went to court because he worked things out with people. And so he's got this, this 10 essential elements of agreements, and he he teaches people how to do effective agreements. So um, there's probably a lot of situations where people would not need a trial lawyer if they had a really good agreement. And I'm sure you you wonder why people get to where they get. Um, So people that are underprivileged do not have resources to even go visit with attorney to talk about what their rights are. So how do you help these people think about you know, what they don't know, and in the future, what could they learn about looking at agreements, looking at contracts, looking at situations in a sort of preventive way? Is, is that part of what you do? It's not really what, what we do, so to speak. Um, the, the way the attorneys in my organization and myself, we are all contingency-based, so we don't charge any money unless we get a recovery from the defendant or the insurance company. Um, so actually, so, so we do represent in my business, a lot of people who are almost on the streets who, you know, who have either been severely injured or lost a loved one or fired. Um, you know, I, we took a case of trial where our client was a worker at a big fancy jeans manufacturer and he was hurt on the job and they fired him like an old piece of jeans, honestly. And, uh, we had to sue the company because he was basically on the streets, um, because they, he couldn't get another job because he was hurt. But you know, in the laws in California is that you can't discriminate against someone just because they're hurt or disabled. You have to accommodate them and they didn't do any of that. So we took that case to trial and got a great verdict for him and you know, sent a message to the garment industry in Los Angeles that you can't treat people like that. You can't just fire them because they're hurt on the job. Um, and our verdict went a long way to, to changing things in the garment industry here. Um, and it obviously changed his life. Like he's no longer having to pick up cans, just survived at six daughters. And, you know, he, he's an immigrant from Mexico and he sent his daughters to, he had six daughters, sent them to like Berkeley and UCLA and, you know, just the classic American dream, right? And he was just thrown out because he was hurt and couldn't, couldn't you know, they just, they just didn't want to try to accommodate him. 
and the jury's obviously saw in our favor, but he's an example of someone that is represented without, he didn't have to, obviously couldn't afford to pay us, um, but uh, we were able to work it out so that, uh, you know, things went really well for him. So that's the area that we practice. Uh, we don't really do, we don't do contract law or anything like that. You can tell I know, well, I work with a lot of attorneys on intellectual property and contracts and nonprofit law, but um, not in prosecution, although um, I do have state's attorneys that are friends of mine. They're yeah. the ones that tell me all the best lawyer jokes, though, by the way. <laughs> the, the danger in that is conductor jokes and lawyer jokes are many times the same jokes. <laughs> really? I, I, I don't think I've heard a good conductor joke in a while. Well, I'll tell you one off, offline. Okay. <laughs> you just take a lawyer joke and change, anything has to do with ego and self-respect. You know, it, it'll work there. It'll yeah. work. So, um, what do you see? So, how far into your presidency are you? Uh, halfway, just 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 over halfway on September on July first. So it's a three year gig. No, it's a one year. One so, year. So we're a ladder, yeah. So, like I said, we start. Okay. We're we're on the executive committee, and then and then I got I got to serve another two years after this as a past president on the executive committee. Okay, that's where I was headed. So there's there's a preparation time, which looks like it's pretty systematic. So by the time you're president, you got an idea of what's going on. Yeah. And believe it or not, that doesn't exist in a lot of organizations. Oh, you're president. We elect you in May. You start next week. And they go, okay, now what do I do? So talk a little bit about your ramping up to be president. And just for people out there thinking about systems and board responsibilities. So Talk about you know, how many years you you talked about it earlier, but let's just put it in a sequence here so it's really clear. You know, think of my age and mental condition. So it's very clear here about you know how do we get ourselves prepared to do a good job? Then we do that work, and then there's the benefit of what we learned and what we experienced over that time that new people don't have. So talk about that whole that whole unit. Yeah, I'm a huge believer in the ladder system. I actually I'm on a uh, the board of alum uh, directors for my alumni at my law school here in Los Angeles. And I actually revamped our whole bylaws to create a ladder because before it was like you were saying, someone's vote, you're elected as president and boom, you're in. You've, you know, you've had no planning time and preparation time. And I, so I, I think the ladders are great. I think it really prepares the president for when it's his or her time they're ready to go. And it also gives you time. Like for, for me, I had, I spent about six months before eight months planning my year, um, meeting with people, you know, laying out a whole platform for what I want to implement. So then when I'm president on January 1st, I'm hitting the ground running. I'm not, I'm not ramping up. Um, and that, in that time, thank God I had that because it really did. I mean, save me a lot of work and it really helped us get on this trajectory where we're, we're, off to the races, you know, once things started opening up for COVID, which was great. So I'm a big believer in that. So like I said, you started as a secretary and you didn't, I didn't know much at all. I'll be honest. When I, when I got elected secretary, thank God I had that time because I was not, I was learning about how the charity functioned. And cause you don't, I mean, as a board member, you, 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 you are, you're involved, but you don't know the inner workings because there's executive committee meetings way more often than there are board meetings and the board meetings, you know, you have a lot to go through. There's so many different committee reports, so you don't have time to really get intimate with each aspect or each chapter of our of, the, of within the charity. And so, you know, once you're in the executive committee meetings, you're seeing how the other presidents have done it. You learn a lot from them. So those are small; those are you know six, seven people. 
Um, and you go, you, you, you go into a lot of heavy discussions about big decisions that have to be made that the board often doesn't know about. So I had so many executive committee meetings under my belt by the time I'm president that I was just ready to go. So I'm a big, big believer in ladder system. Out of my way. I'm ready to go. That's a great story. And then now you've got, after this year, you got two years of, um, sharing your wisdom and watching somebody else sweat. Yeah. I can sit back and just, you know, make some comments here and there. <laughs> so I'm going to take a sponsor moment here. Then I'm going to come back and talk about um, a couple more things. So Center Vision Leadership Foundation, um, our motto is we transform leaders, transforming organizations, transforming lives. In order to be a good leader, one has to prepare oneself with the skills and the knowledge and then gain the experience and learn from that experience because guess what? We don't do everything just right. When I'm, a, when I'm introduced as a keynote speaker, people say, oh, he's an expert in leadership. And yeah, I'm, I'm a student of leadership, but I recently discovered in, in the last 74 plus years, I've made a lot of mistakes, which does qualify me for an expert because I've learned from those mistakes. So part of what we deliver Center Vision is what I've learned, but we have a team of experts and we also publish a magazine. Here's a, a nonprofit near me in Stanton that has the, the most definitive camera collection in the world, a camera that went to the moon, a camera that does all kinds of other things. Here's our recently deceased friend, Frank Shakowitz, that was a motorcycle policeman and he formed this great Make-A-Wish Foundation. And here's one about different themes. Here's the army. We have all kinds of stories for you, the leader. So if you go to nonprofitperformance.org, nonprofit performance, it's called Nonprofit Performance 360 magazine because you get a lot of resources. And this is these are not infomercials. These are not ads. These are, this is hard content. People like Daniel who've been there, they've done it. They've got a, a lesson to share um, about what you can do to improve the effectiveness of the organization you lead. It's not your organization. There's a structure that it doesn't belong to anybody because it's a non-stock C corporation that is there to serve others. So equip yourself. The nonprofitperformance.org. By the way, you're on the nonprofit exchange. If you're passing by watching this on YouTube or Facebook, go to uh, nonprofit exchange nonprofit exchange oh actually there's a the the nonprofit exchange.org got a lot of these links got to remember the nonprofit exchange.org and it'll take you to a reference page so you can learn more about all these great interviews and daniel we've we've had people that have talked about some of the legal aspects of a nonprofit so um being inside of a nonprofit and i know your area of expertise is other there's so many areas of law but uh, there's some classic mistakes, <clears throat> maybe in looking at this organization, there's some upgrades that are, we're always looking at. I'm sure any organization needs to constantly do upgrades, but looking at, at nonprofit boards and nonprofit organizations, are there some areas of compliance that people ignore and they really shouldn't ignore? Oh man, I, I hope you're not going to ask me a bunch of uh, nonprofit legal questions because no, no, that's no. going to, no. It's not, uh, your area. it's not your area. I wouldn't do that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we because on it, we're made up of a bunch of lawyers, but we still we we know what we like. You said earlier, you don't know what you don't know, and uh, that's why we hire a nonprofit lawyer. We actually recently hired one because we're trying to expand, and so there's a lot of compliance issues that I had no idea about. For example, when we wanted to expand, we have all this intellectual property that is the Los Angeles Trial Lawyers Charities brand, 
and you know they become we're los angeles trial lawyers charity they're going to become or orange county trial lawyers charity so in order to let them kind of run with their new charity we are maintain owning the ip but they need to give us some consideration in return for that we didn't want to take their money so there had to be some way that we can make it a clean expansion and there's just all so many different areas that that we're learning through our our uh, nonprofit attorney uh, making sure that we're sticking with our mission statement, you know, that we that we stick with just Los Angeles. If we go outside Los Angeles and start doing things in Ventura, that can maybe get us in some trouble about really sticking to our region, for example. Um, a lot of stuff that I, you know, it's it, it it it's worth I think spending the money with a nonprofit lawyer to make sure you're doing everything right, your bylaws are correct. Um, it's worth biting the bullet if you can in the beginning to do it right, set it up right. That's a great answer. And here, here it is, folks, from a person who's a skilled attorney saying, I don't know this stuff. We need somebody who's an expert that knows this stuff. Um, Daniel, that's a big gap. I see a very big gap. People don't know how to have... Now, intellectual property belongs to the, the charity. Right. And, and so the charity has you know rights over that and stewardship of that asset. asset. So how do you leverage that for the value... And, and even if you did bring in money, which you could use that for a revenue stream, that would then go back into the work that you're doing. So it's not our money, it's the money for the mission of the organization. Um, so that's a, that's a, what I'd hoped you'd, you would say. I, I'm making up off, off the list questions here, so you're in trouble. No, no, a, it, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, we should have, I mean, to be honest, like, like, I think we, something we should have done a long time ago. And, uh, you know, I, I think if we if you're starting a new organization or you're expanding or you're making a big move within your organization, I, I talk to the experts. I mean, trying to do it all on your own or legal Zoom or, you know, not not consulting a tax expert, you know, or bookkeeper, you're going to save. You think you're saving yourself money, but in the long run, it's going to cost you more because someone's going to have to go in there and unwind a bunch of stuff. It's going to take them more time, whereas if they just did it right from the beginning. You're going to save yourself a lot of headache, a lot of time. You're going to do it right. And, and, there, and there's nothing, it's a good, huge, it's a very important investment in, in initially. Um, it'll save you a lot in the long run. Well, it will also save you. Um, um, you can't make yourself uh, exempt from IRS audit, but you can sure make yourself ready for it. 100%. Yeah. And those things that, that you need to know. Um, or, or would you entertain a question from a viewer? Absolutely. All right, um, Mr. Rash, J.E. Rash is in the Commonwealth, Virginia, and Bedford has an international, uh, has several charities, four of them, for 40 years and does amazing work around the globe. But uh, Legacy International is one that, that I think is really prominent. We do some work together. But uh, Mr. Rash, you had a question in the chat, so I'd like you to ask it personally, if you will. Sure. Hello, Daniel. Nice to meet you. Nice to find somebody who went to law school is doing good charity work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I, you know, I, I went through that process myself uh, 50 years ago and decided that, that I just better do the nonprofit work and save humanity the misery of having to deal with me uh, <laughs> from, uh, a legal, from a legal point of view. But uh, no, you know, I want, on your website, you have, I think, about 123 or 124 different sponsors, you call it sponsors. Uh, I think that's terrific. Uh, I guess my question is, What's the process that you use to recruit those supporters, those sponsors, and to sustain those relationships? 
Yeah, it's a great question because so much of what LATLC does is we are a pass-through charity. And so we give away the vast majority of what we raise to uh, these partner charities. And, and the way it kind of started is that we had a few, you know, in the very early days when we weren't raising too much, but we had a few, like one or two that partner charities that either are one of our board members, original founding members had worked with. So we would give money to them. But over time, as we've expanded and we've raised, you know, millions of dollars, then, you know, we have a grant making process. So we have a grant grant making software that we use and we have a date, I think, I think it's October 1st that the partner charity has to apply for a grant. And then we have a whole committee that spends hours and hours and hours, you know, late into the night um, combing through each applicant. So each of these partner charities submit what, what their mission statement is, how much money they need, what they're going to use the money for. And then we sift through the application. We say, does this meet our mission or not? And these are huge, these are big, intense meetings where, you know, there's, a, they get intense because, you know, you're, you're deciding, we obviously want to give to everyone, but some of these partner charities don't really fit in with our mission, or we're not sure if the money's actually going to make a big impact to the, to the people that it says they will. And so we spend a lot of time coming through those. And then once we come with a decision, we say, okay, well, based on how much we've raised this year, we can give away X. We can't quite give away as much as they asked for, but we can give away just a little bit less or half. And then we spread it out over however charities meet our, our, our standards. And then that is then presented to the board. And the board then takes the committee's recommendations. We debate it, we analyze it. And then the whole board votes on okay, we have X amount that we have budgeted that we can give away. We're going to give away X amount to these qualified charities. And that's essentially how it works. And then what we also do, that's that's the direct giving um, or the, the pass-through part of it. We also work through the, with these partner charities to actually put on events. So we'll work with the Venice Family Clinic, for example, which helps homeless people in Venice, California. And we'll put on a day of dignity. That's an event that we put on. We asked to put it on with them where we set up portable showers. We have doctors come in. Uh, we have like a, a small, I guess you could say like a clothing store, which donated clothes. And so that the homeless in Venice, California can then have a day where, you know, they're, they get like a restart basically, um, where they can take showers, get medicine, get the treatment they need, get the clothes they need. Um, so those are our direct giving, meaning that we actually put on the event with the partner charity. So we have a lot of different ways we have, we, we cultivate the relationships, but those are the two main, I would say. Was that what you're after, Mr. Rash? Well, in a way, it's a half of the question. The other, the other part, because you have like, if I'm looking at the reg website, you have like platinum and you have gold and you have different levels of sponsors. And, and, and I was, what I was trying to get out, I'm sorry if I wasn't clear, was how do you get those sponsors and how do you sustain those relationships? I see. I apologize. Yeah, I thought you were talking about who do we give it to. But oh, yes, no, the, that's good. I know you gave me good information. That's good. That's um, good. No, that's but fine. so so the way we raise money is mostly from trial lawyers or it's vendors uh, who support trial lawyers, such as court reporting services. Um, you could have medical management companies. Uh, you can have, sometimes there's uh, lending companies that lend to our clients, you know, litigation lending, for example. Um, there's a, you know, huge array of supporting, you know, vendors that support trial lawyers and they want to get their name in front of trial lawyers to get their business. And so they will sponsor 
our big, we have a big summer soiree this year in August at the, in the Intercontinental in downtown Los Angeles, where it's a big gala. Um, we're integrating our partner charities in the event so that, you know, they'll put on it, that there's a great trike giveaway, which is uh, adaptive bicycles for disabled kids. We're going to have a, a trike race during the event, which is going to be there to, to showcase what these charities do. And so we can have a sponsor of that trike race. So they'll, they'll pay us money and then there'll be a sponsor. And then at whatever level they donate, they then get the levels that you see on the website. So the platinum, gold, et cetera, based on how much these different sponsors donate, either a law firm or a vendor. Does that make sense? Yeah, perfect. Thank um, you. This is, thank you for asking that. This is a, um, um, a very often considered and asked questions among, uh, we travel around the country, mostly on Zoom now, but we have in years past in person doing workshops for nonprofit leaders. But it often comes up, how do you have this conversation with sponsors? Because obviously there's really good brand recognition for the sponsors, but besides the brand recognition, are there other tangible results that, that they get? It's probably what it is, is the area of philanthropy. They're spending their marketing money. It's a different budget. It's not their philanthropy money. It's, it's still philanthropy, but it's marketing philanthropy. They want to use the marketing money, but they want to use it to do some good. So is there any, um, I don't, want you to reveal any trade secrets i'm not asking that but what's the what's the mindset or what's what's the process for people who want to have that conversation but don't know where to start yeah i think one of the biggest things that we're kind of pivoting from or, or at least uh, i don't say pivot from but we're kind of adjusting or adapting is that um we want to create a win-win right i mean we want to always you know present come from the mindset our board members that this is a win-win for them because yes, like, like you said, you have great exposure. So we wanna show them why them sponsoring something will be great exposure for their law firm, for their business, that the emails that go out go to tens of thousands of people, that their logo is gonna be on that. So we show the value there, but we've really done a good job this year, I think, of showcasing how, where the money directly goes to and, and, and how their money has helped a kid directly for a college scholarship that they wouldn't have otherwise had, for example, and they really don't have any money for anything, but now that like this money is tied to that. So a lot of our different, our new revenue streams and our new revenue events that we've created this year are tied directly to one of our fundraising goals. So we have a college scholarships where we give away about $50,000, almost $50,000 in college scholarships. We put on a virtual poker tournament for college scholarships. So that $10,000 you're doing to be the title sponsor is going to help these kids. We have great videos and great promotional material that shows the kids. And, you know, they have videos that they say, this is how much this has changed their life and helped them. And we show like, look, this is going to get your name brand to thousands of people, but you're also doing this directly for this kid. So I think we, 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 we want to show how those the win-win on both sides. I don't know if that answers your question, Hugh, but. That's a, that's a great, that's a great answer. And I like to point out to the nonprofit leaders and clergy listening, um, this is this is a lawyer. He's not a fundraising professional. However, he can accurately describe the why and the what happens. And so having board members that understand what it's about, you know, and, and, and Daniel, I'm, I'm sure the way you've described your board, it's, it's a high functioning board that not everybody, not, not any one person does everything. There's there's a there's a buy-in from everybody. Am I right? A hundred percent. Uh yeah. I mean, it's just it we're we're so big. I mean, I'm especially with trials opening up, 
I mean, when you're in trial, you're you're nonstop. And so, yeah, it's it, you it's too much for one person to take on. Absolutely. Well, we're in an area of fundraising and I, uh, Jeffrey Fulgham's here, one of our um, advisors with Cinevision, who's a fundraising professional. Jeffrey, you have a comment or question for our guest today? Yeah, I had I had a couple of questions, uh, Daniel, and I appreciate you being on. And it's it's great to hear someone who's doing this. Um, not as a fundraising professional, but actually raising money, which proves to people that uh, we need to have private, what, I, what I'm going to call private sector people doing fundraising because the individual fundraisers can't do it all. <laughs> we can strategize, we can advise, and we can coach, and we can do all those things, but we're still only one person. So... We need a team of people who care and who know how to follow the rules and how to do it right and who have who can carry that message out to other people who have connections that we simply don't have. So I think that's great. I'm, I want to ask you, we're talking about, especially now coming out of COVID and courtrooms opening up, a lot more trials. I mean, you guys are all busy, busy, busy. I've been fundraising for 30 years. The first thing that uh, campaign people come to me and they say, okay, the first two groups of people we're gonna go to is all the law firms and all the medical practices because obviously they're lucrative businesses to be in. Um, people are successful and they think that's the first place they should go to get money. And my response to them usually is not exactly. <laughs> Uh, because of the fact that these are busy people and they don't have a lot of time to sit down and look at these kinds of things. So I guess my question is more related to what is your hook when you try to engage people and get them into this organization and onto this ladder? What do you do to get them interested and excited when you're going to people that are as busy and, and I'll say distracted in a good way, you're distracted with your work that you're doing. How do you get them engaged in what you're doing and get them excited and wanna commit that time that they could give to something else? Well, that's a great question. Um, so in the trial lawyer world, what, what I've experienced is that the plaintiff trial lawyers have some of the biggest hearts of any lawyers out there because we represent people who go through the toughest times. I mean, it's people who lost loved ones, they lost a limb. I mean, they've been terminated and can't get a job, they're almost homeless. Um, so you're representing people when it is the hardest moments of their life. So you have to have a big heart to just do the job that we do. You have to have a thick skin, but you have to have a big heart because you have to be compassionate and care. And that just doesn't go away when your day ends, right? I right. mean, you're just, you're, you're, you have that makeup. So we go to trial lawyers who, who are already naturally inclined to be that way. And so, you know, obviously, you know, we, we, we ask for money, but, but I think the key is, is the way we sort of hook our donors is that, you know, there's been this story in the public that insurance companies and big corporations for the last 20 years have been just, you know, calling us ambulance chasers, saying that we're just greedy, these greedy lawyers, which in my experience couldn't be further from the truth. Like I said, these the attorneys that I know and that are on the plaintiff side are the most caring, hardworking individuals that really do want to make the world a safer place and want to make a difference in people's lives. And so we tell them like, look, 
we need to show the world that we are good people. And LATLC is one of those avenues where we can give our money back and really make a difference in our community. But we're also showing the world, showing the, the community that we are good people. And we're not what all these insurance companies and big corporations are saying about us. We're good people. And I think once they get behind that fight and they, we show them where the money goes and how much it helps people, it's, it's amazing how much they open up their checkbooks um, when you kind of yeah. show both sides of the fight. Right. Hey, Daniel, that's a, that's a great answer. And, um, and I'll concur with you. I have a, a friend of mine from uh, when I was living in Lynchburg who is a, a trial lawyer and specializes in personal injury and um, has done very well and is exactly the kind of person you're talking about and the kind of person you are, which is caring and sensitive and really wants to pour back into things and, um, and has done a great job of, of doing that. Um, I want to ask you just one more real quick one, and it's completely unrelated. You were talking about how you, this excites me because I like to see things scale out, and I like to see successful projects get duplicated in other communities without reinventing the wheel and without making unnecessary mistakes. And if you have a good platform slash product that can be duplicated and replicated in another community in a similar way, it's tremendous if someone can get that leg, that, that leg up. And I'm wondering if you have done anything, you mentioned that talking about replicating this, have you created a, a template or you plan to create some type of a, of a template or a, or a book, if you will, that would allow these organizations to grab onto something that maybe you've trademarked or copyrighted yes. that they could okay. use to move forward? Yeah, it, it, that's great. I mean, I, I love talking about this because this has sort of been my baby uh, for the last two years. But yes, we've created a playbook where we have a whole PowerPoint presentation that we used for Orange County. This is the first time we do it. It's been in talks for 10 years, um, but we finally put pen to paper and said, we're going to actually do this. But we had to create the playbook because it took us 10 years to get to the point where we could hand something off how to run the admin, how to handle the finances, the website, the marketing, the fundraising, all that stuff. I don't want them to make the same mistakes. So, and we're, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a living, breathing document that we're always changing because we're always learning, right? I mean, right. So, so we are creating and have created this whole playbook where we have the bylaws and we have you know, the, the website template and we have you know, how to fundraise, how to set up the board and we hand it off and we, I put it into a PowerPoint presentation where we went down to law firms in Orange County to get them on board. And now they're just running with it and they don't, they're, they're going to start probably seven years ahead of where we started just because of this playbook. So I'm a big believer in processes and procedures. And so, and I'm a big believer in putting that in writing and then making it a living document that you always adjust. So my next, once my presidency is done, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to take the lead in expansion and go up to San Francisco and do the same pitch to them, get the playbook ready for them, um, and then go to the next place and do the same thing. Because I think if you have a good product, like you said, and you put pen to paper, and you just hand it off, I think uh, you really do. You can create it. You, you you can you can expand and spread and and things hold up. I think. Thank yeah, you. That's cool. So that's going to be your legacy, Daniel. And, <laughs> and I'm just thinking, you know, where are there more trial lawyers than in LA? I mean, maybe New York, maybe one yeah, other yeah. place, but I mean, you all are definitely the lion in the room for this. Yeah. And I think that really sets the stage of 
for a level of excellence and, and kind of trust and experience that people would have looking at you all. So that's very cool. Thanks for, for the response. Oh, thank Great questions, Jeffrey. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, Jeremy. So um, what's in the so great answers, by the way, we uh, kind of put you on the spot here, but you're just, you're just knocking them down. Great job. Um, what's in the future? Well, I mean, I think that we, we look local, obviously we st we start local, local is always number one, but I mean, I think we statewide national. Um, and like I've been talking about, um, we have, I think what we do in terms of the local is that we look to our donors, where are the, where, where, where are we not getting donors? Every, in my opinion, every plaintiff lawyer in Los Angeles should donate to our cause. Because like I said, we're a great organization who does a lot, but we're also changing the perception of trial lawyers out there, justifiably, truthfully, honestly, we're giving back and we're changing the way people look at trial lawyers. So I think we, we, we make sure we expand that every plaintiff lawyer in Los Angeles is donating to our cause. Um, and then, like I've been saying, we expand, we, we, we grow this thing because I know there's so many trial lawyers throughout the state, throughout the country who want to be part of this and who want to find an avenue to give back in their local communities. So that's what I see happening. I mean, I think, I, I think we'll be in multiple states probably in two years. Well, um, got a couple of things I want to do here. I want to do a sponsor message, and then I want to go back at the end to give you a chance to leave a final thought or, or challenge or wish for people. But is there anything I haven't asked you that you'd like to share with people today? No, I mean, I just... Uh... I don't know if I'll do it at the end, but just our, our website, www.latlc.org. Please go. Anyone can donate. Anyone can be a part of it. We have great events on there that uh, if you're local, we'd love for you to come. That's great. That's great. Um, our, um, so why did you want to come on our show today? I'm curious. Well, I mean, I saw your, I, I liked your, uh, is it your 31 steps to leadership? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that. I love that. I love people that want to train leaders of tomorrow. Um, I think that is such a great cause to to get behind, and I I really appreciate people like you that want to make people's lives better. I mean, I'm that's that's how I feel. That's my passion, and I I I, I saw the same in you. So I'm excited to be here. I was I was very excited to be here. Be asked to be on this. Thank you. That's 31 Days to Becoming a Better Leader. It's betterleader.me. You can find it betterleader.me. And this is my volunteer work in my third career. I, I still do business consulting and leadership training, but this is this is how I, um, my philanthropy. So I'm going to do a sponsor moment, then I'll come back to you for a final thought. But I showed you this magazine and a magazine we send out and our, our printer is WordSprint, who's more than a printer. He's a, it's a mailhouse. But he's also an expert. Uh, he, Bill Kilmer, owns WordSpent. He and his team are experts on keeping your tribe active, keeping your donors active, keeping all of your supporters engaged. It, we, we tend to want to send out a fundraising letter at the end of the year. And by the way, what's happened in the other 11 months? So his routine that he's spent 20 years and two and a half million mailings to research, he knows exactly the formula is 30%. It's the right message. This is what's going on. We've been good stewards with your money. Your money has empowered these things, or here's the impact. 
that's happened because of your donation. So you tell people what's going on in a regular rhythm. That's the second one. And it's the right message and the right rhythm to the right person. Make sure your list is up to date. So you're sending a message to somebody that's still in the position, somebody that's still living, somebody that's still a donor um, or a supporter in some way. And that's 90%. The other 10% is it's got to look decent, but not too fancy. So Bill Gilmer and his team at Word Sprint are our sponsor. They print the magazine and do our, our mailings for us. It's top of mind marketing. Let your donors, your supporters know what's going on. And then when you come to the annual fundraising ladder, they're going to respond a lot more positively. Wordsprint.com. So Daniel, a lot of good stuff today. Thank you for spending time and moving an appointment to be here. Um, what do you want to leave with people with today? Yeah, look, I mean, I just think to kind of put a bow on what we talked about earlier, I think as a nonprofit leader, I think if you approach it like it's a business and you understand that the more, more money you raise, the more you can give back, it really will help grow your charity and make a true difference in people's lives. But you really on the in the in the back of the house stuff, you really just gotta, you know, analyze it in that way, like like you and I talked about and do the right things up front, do the right investing up front, and it really will increase the revenue that therefore you can then give back. I can't stress that enough. Good words. Um, Daniel um, Kramer, um, who's a professional and, and, and a litigator in, in the world, but he also is president of this Los Angeles Trial Lawyers Charities, LATC.org, is it? LATLC.org. Okay. LATLC.org. Los Angeles Trial Lawyers Charities. Yeah. <laughs> .org. You can find it there. It's on the webpage at the, the nonprofit exchange.org. And if you get the podcast anywhere you get podcasts, it'll be on there as well. Daniel, thank you for great wisdom, good stories, and um, a good interview today. Thank you so much, Hugh. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Nonprofit Exchange. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.